You are tuning in to the Atlanta Realtors Rundown, the official podcast for the Atlanta Realtors. We're here to keep you updated with the latest trends, topics, and keep you in the know of our ever-changing Atlanta market. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Atlanta Realtors Rundown. I'm Matt LaMarche, your host for today's episode, and I'm super excited to have a very special guest, not just in the studio, but also someone that if you've been around Atlanta real estate, you've probably have heard her name or seen her um, out and about in the community, but also uh, I think is probably pretty widely recognized as a leader, not just in Atlanta real estate, but in all things, our topic today, new construction, new development, Krista Huffstickler, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time today. So First, for everyone that doesn't know Krista, which whatever rock you've been living under for a while in Atlanta real estate, (laughs) uh, please give us like the two to three minute bio on who you are, where you came from, how you got involved in real estate, your experience in real estate. Just unpack it all for us. Sure. Uh, So I got into real estate in 2002 and kind of came in from a different angle where most real estate agents come in in a general brokerage, a traditional real estate angle, Mm -hmm. I came in and moved up for the first decade in my career working in the new home sales and marketing space. And the company that I worked for specialized only in this type of real estate. So we didn't do traditional buyer-seller representation. It was we would go into projects and we would sell condo high-rises or new construction townhome communities or single-family subdivisions. And you know, 10 years in the business, I really started from the bottom as an on-site agent, not that that's the bottom, but kind of that segue in, and then worked every job that you can work in that field. So you start as an on-site agent and then move into a sales manager and then moved into programming the marketing and connecting that with sales. And then that kind of seamlessly moved into um, business development and going out and bringing in new business to the brokerage. And ultimately what happened was the recession of 2007, 2008 really kind of dried up that business, right? It it felt like it happened overnight. It really happened over the course of a couple of years, but that business model really transformed because so many of those projects were foreclosed or went under or were belly up or fell victim to the subprime lending crisis that we went through um, that kind of caused the last recession. And so coming out of that, I really found myself thrust into more of a capital markets world where I was being exposed to decision makers, debt funds, banks, equity groups that were either foreclosing or taking back bad assets that builders and developers had been foreclosing on. And so I found myself now learning this whole different side of how the new development sales and marketing um, approach was being formed, right? Like who's financing these deals and how are these deals put together? And so, you know, making those new relationships and learning more about that business really, I think, empowered me with this really refined, unique skill set that I didn't realize at the time. (laughs) Most real estate agents don't have. Um, And so, of course, came out of that. And um, because the company that I was working for closed, you know, during that time, um, at that point, I found myself then for the next five years in a traditional general brokerage company, 
which was a great experience because then it immersed me into this whole other side of real estate mm -hmm. that I had never been exposed to before. Yeah. And so spent five years there. It was a wonderful experience. I learned a lot. It is very different than developer <laughs> services and a traditional general brokerage model. Um, but, you know, being armed 15 years coming out of that with an understanding of, even though they're fundamentally very different, there's ways that you can create these synergies between the two. And so in then founding my own brokerage five years ago, what I've tried to do is really kind of take the two and interconnect them. We do have a very robust developer services division. We are number one in the state for most product types for new development sales and marketing. Um, but considering that our brokerage, 80% of what we did was a traditional general brokerage type of transaction. Right. Uh, you know, I think that it's just, we're very unique from the perspective that we do a, a very diverse array of real estate, because I think real estate can mean a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, and so now here we are continuing to refine our skills, redefining how we're selling real estate, because that has changed a lot mm -hmm. since I got in the business. Um, and of course, as you had mentioned, we have a big emphasis and focus on serving builder developer clients as well. Yeah, I love it. Well, so I really want to speak to two different audiences today. The first being, you know, our members, obviously, that are listening to this, that are, you know, maybe some of them know that there is a difference or don't know that there's a difference between resale and general brokerage um, or the investment developer services side of things, new construction, if you will. Um, I know every time I get into a new construction deal. I'm like, oh, no, this is very different mm -hmm. <laughs> than just general brokers. So talk to us um, first as, as the realtors are listening. What do you think is the greatest difference between general brokerage, resale, you know, investors, the normal day to day, if you will, of a normal broker within Atlanta? Um, and then talk to us a little bit about the differences working with developers, working with major investors, people that are buying land uh, by the acres or, you know, whatever, uh, and spending tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars at a time. And then also for our consumers, kind of the same question, you know, when they go to look at new construction projects, what should they be looking for? Is there any real difference between a transaction uh, as it relates to like a general brokerage transaction and new development? Sure. You know, I think if you're a, a realtor or a real estate professional and you're listing a single new construction house, it's just a, a single house, there are going to be a lot of similarities from the perspective of if you're taking a listing of a resale house. There, there's going to be a lot of similarities in how you're listing that and how you're marketing it and how you're garnering more awareness. And you're, you know, like the point of a real estate agent is to find a buyer for a seller. <laughs> That's right. And so I think that there are some nuances to things like if you're selling something that you don't know what it looks like yet. Mm. <laughs> you know, I get that a lot from our agents at our brokerage sure. where they'll call me and they'll say, okay, I've got this listing, but I don't really know what it's going to look like yet, but I have a buyer. So what do I do? You know, in a non-site capacity, mm -hmm. when we're pre-selling new construction, we have a spec sheet and we are identifying and articulating it. These are the cabinets that are going in. This is the color. This is the paint spec. These are the knobs. This is the, you know, inventory number. It's coming from Home Depot. You know, you, we're articulating exactly what we're getting. So right. I think that you can apply some of that in a one-off basis if you're a real estate professional. If you have a client that's coming to you and they're saying, I have uh, a track of land and I want to put 75 single family houses on it. That is going to be a very different environment mm -hmm. from not only what the execution on the 
back end is going to look like, but everything that goes into I'm going to build these 75 houses. There are a thousand things that happen behind the scenes that no one really sees. Mm -hmm. What people see is that they walk into a sales center and there's an agent there that's showing them a model home and sharing floor plans and saying, here are the cabinets, pick the one that you like best. (laughs) But the thousand things that go in ahead of time, they can range from, you know, we provide a lot of pre-development consulting for our clients. Mm -hmm. And so helping them with review of master association documents or fee structures on how much, you know, especially in condos Mm -hmm. or even townhome and single family, like what is the monthly fee? What is the fee going to cost? What are the amenities? What is the package? Who's the best property management company to come in? And Mm -hmm. all property management companies are not created equal. Things like refining product and price and what should this look like and because we have a very um, robust research division we provide a lot of data focused analysis on various projects so that we can ensure that we're working on the front end to position our clients to be successful all the way through Mm -hmm. we've had many instances where we're starting to become known for coming in after the fact when mm-hmm. projects are having challenges or they need refined or things need to be tweaked. It's always better to come in in the very, very beginning so that you're setting things up properly from jump and you're seeing that momentum continue to, to ensure continued success. So, you know, all of those things are part of what a real estate company or an agent would need to be able to provide because if you haven't been through that or you don't know what you're doing or you don't have the experience and you're giving somebody bad advice on a 20 million dollar or 200 million dollar project at the end of the day it, it kind of sort of falls on you as the expert because they're approaching you and saying hey this is what you do and I need your help in this um, and in a lot of instances it's I would say the biggest difference is that you don't have just one client you know when you're selling a house for Mr. and Mrs. Smith, it's a a more, I say, it's more of a B to C, right? Right, right. It's very emotional. It's very, um, you know, you're at their house, you're petting their dog, you're you're connecting with them. It's a big transition for them because they raised their family in this house and now they're selling it and now they're downsizing. And so there's an emotional process that agents experience when they're working with buyers Mm -hmm. and sellers. In a developer services capacity, it is more of a B2B. There's not a lot of emotion. It's strictly numbers. Mm-hmm. It's do these numbers work? And yeah, we'd love to have these most expensive cabinets, but then we have to raise the prices by X dollars. And, right. you know, instead of having six months supply in this price point, we have 24 months supply. And so <laughs> we have to make some financial business decisions about what we're building and what it looks like. Right. You also have multiple parties involved as your clients, because typically you can have a developer and then a developer is either a builder or they'll engage a builder. So you might have a developer and a builder. And there's potentially an equity partner involved, which is participating in some sort of an equity position. And then probably a bank, the debt, who's going to be financing the vertical construction. Right. And depending upon the size and the complexity of the projects, those can be very um substantial organizations that are very sophisticated and so kind of going back to the advice that you're giving and that kind of consultative approach you have to really know what you're doing because in a lot of instances I've said you know working with people that are extraordinary these really really smart people 
you have to be good and you have to know what you're doing or ultimately that falls on you, right, right as an agent. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's great advice. And and I think, too, it kind of gets lost on people, the, the new development or new construction development that occurs to your point, once people see the, the the actual buildings going up, the sign out in front of <laughs> on the road frontage, there's been dozens of months, if not several years of planning and zoning and municipal and government intervention, <laughs> either a lot of it or a little bit of it, um, that uh, that takes place prior to, you know, one ounce of concrete being poured. So talk to us a little bit about that process. And again, kind of thinking about both of our audiences here, I think a lot of people just see the concrete go down, the buildings start going up, and then, you know, they get sold. But I like to think that, you know, as an individual agent working with resale, I've got to be ahead of the market as far as pricing goes. I've got to be ahead of the market as far as timing goes. I've got to look at the comps. I've got to look at everything happening around that property. For you, looking at a raw piece of land and working with a developer or builder, you're working even further ahead of where the market will be in two or three or four years. So talk to us a little bit about your strategy, how you go about um, you know, lining things up and, and really more or less the, the services that, that you guys offer in, in terms of developer services. Because I think that kind of gets lost on people. It's just sales and marketing, right? <laughs> Agreed. Well, and I think the other thing is the volatility in the market over the last couple of years has made that even more complex. Mm-hmm. I have a tendency to, um, as I'm working through and we're pricing out a community, I will automatically add some percent based on multiple economic variables Mm -hmm. to wherever we think these homes are going to sell. Because to your point, I have projects that I've worked on for two, three, four years before anybody even knows that a project (laughs) is a project, right? And things change and prices modify Mm -hmm. and costs go up for the builders or for the developers, market conditions. That's right. And so, you know, you have to really, again, be forward thinking about what's the worst case that's going to happen and where is this really going to end up? And those numbers, I mean, pre-COVID, since the beginning of my career, prices always move up from where we think they're going to be when we're pricing a community, a a high rise, a subdivision, whatever it might be. They always 100% of the time end up higher than we think they're going to end up. What has happened in recent years is everyone's heard of supply chain issues and the price of lumber and the price of concrete. And it's funny because I felt like with every passing month, the price of something was going up. (laughs) That's true. You know, this month it's (laughs) sheetrock. Next month it's concrete. The month after that it's, you know, piping. I mean, it was just everything you can think of. Mm -hmm. There was this kind of ongoing theme where, and this wasn't builders or developers creating this. These were suppliers. These were supply chain issues where in a lot of instances, these builders couldn't get these, these raw materials to be able to build whatever the community or the project was that they were building. And so as a function of that, you see that the, the price variations, Mm -hmm. but it's also to a degree what's caused that lack of supply that we're seeing in the market. And I think that's really what's affecting the consumers. Mm-hmm. And that this isn't a new concept that no one, if you, if you don't read any news, maybe you don't know this, but, you know, fundamentally that variable along with these increased costs and pushing prices up is what has contributed to some of the issues with builders and developers being unable to meet the deficit of product demand that we've been seeing in Atlanta well before COVID. Right. I mean, this was something that we struggled with 
years before COVID. Mm -hmm. Once we moved through the absorption of all of the REO assets of coming out of the last recession, we moved into a very stable market. Mm -hmm. And then what we were finding is prices were moving up, costs of materials were moving up, the cost of money. I mean, this is a whole other topic for another day about how <laughs> the financial markets and <laughs> debt and equity is affecting yeah. why we don't have more product coming to the market. Uh -huh. But all of these things together really contributed to just a real inability of getting homes to the market for consumers to buy. Yeah. And that, I think, is something that we're seeing consistently being a struggle because as the cost to build these things is going up, the attainability for a buyer is also being reduced. Mm -hmm. And then when we saw that uptick in interest rates in May, you know, <laughs> over 6%, you know, you have real estate that's really expensive with rates that are really high. It was removing an entire subset of buyers out of the market because the affordability just dissipated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and and to dig just for a quick moment into the market dynamics, because as you mentioned, here in Atlanta, we've been in a seller's market for what feels like five or six years, almost seven years at this point. And again, to your point, long before the pandemic even was a thing. Um, and I heard a stat, I can't remember, it may have been at ARA's uh, summit last year, but, you know, we, we normally build, what, 8,000, 9,000 homes a year, new homes a year. And for the last five, we'd been building 3,800, 4,000, 4,200, like half of what we normally would build, which means for five years, <laughs> we've been at half of our capacity just for new construction. So when we're talking about market dynamics specifically, um, as it relates to new construction, when you haven't built as many homes as you normally would in five years, and then you throw the pandemic on top of it with all the new demand, because Georgia was open for business most, I think it was like March 13th in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We <laughs> the world shut day. down, and then in the afternoon, Georgia was like, yeah, so we're opening back up for business. Uh -huh. um, but that obviously attracted a lot of people, residents, but also businesses, and you know, a lot of Fortune 100 and 500 companies came here as a result of that. So um, so talk to us a little bit about the market dynamics, because where we have been versus now where we kind of are, um, to your point, we're still seeing some some lag in logistics and stuff, uh, supplies, materials, all of that still being an issue for developers and builders. But kind of give us a state of the market as it sits now for new construction. Well, you make a great point. You know, there are a lot of really positive variables for Atlanta, for Georgia. And we've seen tremendous growth year over year for the past 10 years. Our tech sector, number one growth in our state. Mm -hmm. um, healthcare, number two growth in the state. The film industry has bought, brought billions of dollars in revenue to the state. And mm -hmm. so it's made for, a, it's, it's kind of been a culmination of all of these incredible things about Georgia have driven a lot of relocation into Georgia, which is just phenomenal for our state and for our city specifically. The challenge is that in parallel to that, we've seen scarcity of land. We've seen costs of land go up, especially in that in-town market where historically, how do you solve for lack of <laughs> land? You go dense, you go up, you go high rise. And we saw condo developers over the last 10 years that for mostly financial reasons and with where cap rates were landing, it made more sense to do multifamily apartments. And so what we saw was a boom of new apartments coming in to Atlanta. And it's created this environment where with no new inventory, but the demand can continuing to stay where it was, 
I believe that in answer to your question, where are we going with this? I think that we're going to be hovering at a level of scarcity for a little while. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, the number fluctuates, but we're right around, if we built 90,000 new homes today, we would hit the current demand. Mm -hmm. But the kind of one asterisk that I want to put there is that it has to be affordable product. We can't build 90,000 $5 million million houses, right? (laughs) Right, Because that's where therein lies where the balance gets difficult Mm -hmm. and where it gets difficult to achieve. You know, it seems simple to say, oh, great. Well, we'll just, I'll, let's, we can all go start being builders. Let's go build houses. Sounds easy enough. The challenge (laughs) is being able to build something that's affordable that the masses can afford. Because if you look market wide, I mean, I remember when our market-wide average sales price was $267,000, no more. I mean, we're like doubling that. And if you look at where that demand is, it's that $500,000 and below. That's Mm -hmm. where the masses can afford, right? And so I think that the difficulty lies in figuring out how to balance the two. Yes, we need to figure out a way to provide homes to buyers that want to buy homes, but at the same time, we have to be cognizant of the fact that what can people afford? And that's partially where the interest rate's going up. We're increasing payments by $1,000 a month. And that becomes an environment where it's no longer affordable for right. someone. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be, I think, difficult over the next three to five years until we can kind of catch up to pricing. You know, the good news is that we are starting to see lumber coming down. And we are starting to see some of the costs of building homes. Now, don't get me wrong. If you go up 500% coming down 10%, you're still 490%. You know, it's going to take some time, I think, to get to that point. And I think as it starts to make less sense to build things like apartment high rises and multifamily buildings, and we start to see a shift back into a comfort level for developers building things like condos, will help tremendously to fill that void because let's face it, we shut down, our population grew, people were not on the roads. And when they all got back on the roads, I don't know about your experience, but traffic (laughs) is worse now than it has ever been Mm -hmm. in the 25 years I've lived in Atlanta. So, you know, I think we're going to continue to see these same trends. And and I think that it's going to take a little bit of time for Mm -hmm. us to be able to fill that void in housing, um, you know, to meet the need, but, but it's going to have to be affordable or we're going to be sitting on a lot of $2 million houses. Yeah. Well, and I love the fact that you, because I've used that 90,000 several times in listing presentations, but also with buyers, like you as a buyer, if you're concerned about interest rates going up a little bit, right, right now, or even in the future, um, you have an opportunity to get in and probably have a pretty safe investment here. Um, single family investment or otherwise, um, because to me, that, le- that level or layer of demand that currently exists, that's a massive number. Like 90,000 homes is a big deal. Um, and especially to your, other, to your earlier point about rentals and you know, um, apartments and stuff, building record numbers in Atlanta, but also the rent went up 18% last year across the board. So it's like single family townhome, doesn't matter where you were, rent went up that much, almost just as much as values did. <laughs> so, you know, if you're looking for a safe investment, Atlanta real estate is not going to be an issue as it relates to that, right? <laughs> I completely agree. And continuing to rent, you know, it's funny because we saw 
millennials 10 years ago that weren't buying homes, they were renting because they wanted to be in the locations they wanted to be in and they didn't want to have to worry about fixing a, you know, broken HVAC system. They wanted to call a guy to come fix Mm -hmm. their broken HVAC system. And so they were able to live in these really beautiful, amazing homes and rent and bring in a roommate and share. Well, (laughs) 10 years later, they're doing the math and, you know, they would have paid for half of a house during that time frame. And so as they're aging up and they're having that financial realization of, oh, wow, okay, Mm -hmm. I probably need to invest into, as you mentioned, it's one of the safest forms of investment that has been since the beginning of time, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, think about that 40, 50 years ago, people bought houses, they owned them for 30 or 40 years, and they paid them off and owned them. Mm -hmm. So I think that you're still going to see real estate as a safe investment, whether interest rates are 4%, 5%, 6%, or 8%. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have to have homes, we have to have places to live. It's one of those things that I think you can never go wrong with owning a home ever since the history of time. And I agree that I don't think that we're in a bubble is the question. Are we in a, we are not in a bubble. We are, we have seen very stable momentum. We are seeing a, I'll call it a little bit of a restabilization right now, which is a good thing Mm -hmm. where we don't have sellers that are aggressively and aspirationally getting way beyond market value and prices. And so I think that's a really good positive thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that this kind of stable evolution of real estate over the next couple of years will be positive overall for buyers and for sellers. Well, and to your 10 year story, if you had bought 10 years ago, it might have actually tripled by now. Absolutely. Because <laughs> we've seen a lot of things double in the last two or three years. So, you know, 10 years ago, um, I know several people that have just bought in the last three or four years that they have seen double plus. Um, and yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, looking at that investment vehicle, just like you would your 401k or uh, a Roth IRA somewhere. I mean, there's a lot of other ways you can invest your money. But in terms of volatility, <laughs> especially over the last two years, um, it's been... Uh, crazy to say the least. So good insight. Well, Krista, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your expertise, your wisdom, and and kind of your, you know, looking forward, because I think we've got a lot to still be excited about. And I love what you mentioned about the market, because I don't think we're in a bubble at all. And this is all data-driven. This isn't Krista's opinion or Matt's opinion. This is looking at numbers, looking at the demand, looking at the supply and going, we still have a lot of work to do <laughs> to get us some to more balanced market, certainly. And Buyers, buyer's market, I don't think is going to come anytime soon, but really appreciate your time today. Um, would love just to hear, obviously, this is the Atlanta Realtors Association podcast. So we'd just love to hear your experience, um, your involvement, anything you want to talk about as far as ARA goes. Well, thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed talking to you and, you know, so thankful to the Atlanta Realtors Association for um, this podcast and for creating a forum where we can all go to get really valuable information. I know this has been a great resource for me and for my agents and for clients of ours to go and kind of really learn more about what's happening in Atlanta real estate. And so I really appreciate everything that you're doing and that ARA is doing to be thought leaders in our industry and to create this really great place that we can all and go and learn about Atlanta real estate. I love it. Well, I appreciate it again. Thank you for tuning in to the Atlanta Realtors Rundown. Please subscribe. And for more information on how to get engaged, check us out at atlantarealtors.com. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode.